This episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast is made possible by Knorr, the world's most chosen food brand. Knorr's Future 50 Foods inspires dietary diversity by identifying 50 of the foods we should eat more of for the health of ourselves and of the planet. By incorporating these and other diverse foods into our meals, they are enabling more diversity in the foods grown. Knorr will inspire and educate people all over the world to cook with these foods and will partner with suppliers and retailers to make these foods accessible and affordable. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is is life. Hello and welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, a columnist and the author of new cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. In this episode, we're looking at area seven of the Chef's Manifesto, education on food safety and healthy diets. Please join the Chef's Manifesto, subscribe, rate and like us below. Your feedback is important to us not only so that we can make sure we are tapping into the subjects you care about, but to help us get our message about food sustainability out to more home cooks and chefs so that they can join us in creating a better food system. Today, I'll be talking to Sam Cass who worked for former US President Obama in the White House as chef and senior advisor for nutrition policy. But first, we're going to hear from Haitian chef Natasha Gomez, who is closely working with her own community to promote tourism, revitalise traditional dishes and empower women. I caught up with her at the Eat Forum in Stockholm in 2019 and began by asking her what she had for breakfast. I had croissant and um, some nice cheeses, um, local cheeses, because when I travel, I tend to eat very local. I want to know what the local eat, what they're having, yep. what is the main produce they have in the country. So I'm um, everything about local. <laughs> nice. And so what would, what would be your local breakfast at home? Being in Haiti, um, we have a lot of influences from the people that were here before us, like the Taino, the Indian, the the French, the Spanish. And where I live in the north part of Haiti, Cape Haitian, it's very French-like. Okay. Um, in the morning, we, may, we might have chocolate or coffee and just some pieces of bread, um, jam, and butter. Wow. That's a typical... Yeah, um, super simple, really nice, yes. just tasty, homely, yeah. yummy. I'd love to know, what do you do at home? I do catering in the Caribbean, also in New York. I work also with World Central Kitchen. They have a culinary school, the only culinary school in the world. It's in Haiti. And I advocate also for 100% local. I'm a brand ambassador for that. Mm-hmm. And I'm into tourism also. Yeah. I'm a consultant in tourism. Okay. And so you were saying earlier that you um, you also teach a little bit. So uh, I'd love to know about yeah what you do at your school or kind of how you help educate people at home. At the school is very interesting because we focus on traditional um, dishes from Haiti, from the Caribbean, because we um, the 
trend now is to eat local because when you eat local, you support your local economy. It's a big chain. And I do also hygiene, sanitation, etiquette. That's really important because now the chefs are not only in the kitchen, they are on the front. And that's why I'm here also. I'm okay. not in the kitchen now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what sort of things do you teach around etiquette? That's really interesting. Um, we talk about food safety because, you know, it's really important because for foodborne illness to food contamination and food costs, many people are allergic to certain food. So if you don't know anything about that and you are in a restaurant, you could really cause um, the death of someone. And something that we take, it's a simple thing, mm -hmm. but it's really big. The first, I can say the first uh, step in food safety mm -hmm. is to know how to wash your hand properly. Yeah. And maybe people, they just, okay, I know I have to wash my hand. No, there's certain steps to take to wash your hand properly. And I say education is the key. It's like when you were a kid, mm -hmm. your parents teach you. And that's why I remember when my kids were growing, I used to sing with them. Because if you say to your kids, go wash your hands, they will just go and put their hands um, under the faucet and then one. So I had to sing with them a whole song for one minute and they will know by that time they have to put their hands, wet their hands, put the soap, rinse, and do um, some, I say, exercise with the fingers. The fingers were tired and that's how they know. How does the song go? I've got a, chi I've got a newborn um, child and that sounds like a brilliant way to educate children. Yes, any song that they like. So they will sing along with you. And before you know, their hand will be properly clean. Ah, so you don't sing like a song about how to wash your hands. You sing the song to them while they're washing yes, their hands. Because if you, um, I think if you repeat the same thing with kids every day, it's kind of boring. So you really have to mix things up sometimes. Oh, you sound like a great mom. <laughs> so in the school, you're, you're teaching people about allergies and kind of food safety in that sense and also about cleanliness in terms of their hands and uniform and other things I imagine. Exactly food temperature also because we live in an island and food gets spoiled um, you have to know your exact temperature for the food so you don't get someone sick mm -hmm. and um, when they say island time this is real because when we party um, for instance, we can say, come to my house at four, we'll eat at six, and then that food gets served at 10. Mm -hmm. So they should really be able to tell their future clients, okay, food safety, this is after two, three hours, no, we have to do something else. Maybe you need another menu. Mm -hmm. So this is really important about cross-contamination and everything. And when we're talking about allergy also, we are fortunate in the Caribbean, we don't have m many cases of people allergic to nuts. But I know in other parts of the world, it's a very big issue. And uh, as well as that, do you touch on kind of nutrition and healthy diets as well? Yes. And being with Chef Manifesto now, it's, it's another way to show them this is what's going on. 
in the world right now. This is the way to be. This is what we want to promote. It's not going about um, all the way to the old days, but to take what was good and do it better. Mm. So we're in Stockholm, Sweden for the Eat Forum, who recently brought out a paper about planetary health diets with guidelines about what people should be eating. Now, of course, living in different parts of the world, a healthy diet, a planetary health diet that's good for the planet and for individuals is different. What do you think a health diet looks like in Haiti? I think we should go in that way to the traditional ways. Um, I remember um, they used to um, talk to us about the farmer's leaves. And there's a dish called farmer's soup. It's about um, the farmers wake up and he goes to his um, farms. We call that bouillon jardin in Creole. It's basically farmer's soup. And whatever that it finds in the market, that's what it cooks with for the day. Oh, wow. So there's no room my for way canned foods. Yeah. It's very fresh. It's very organic. Um, you can have some sweet potato in it, some green plantain, spinach, um, maybe some leaves of moringa, and they're good to go. Carrots and everything. Yum. Yes. That sounds so good. <laughs> and you're cooking today, right? I'm cooking. What are you making? Have you, you've, you've, you're doing a kind of traditional dish today or using ingredients from home? I'm doing, uh, yes, a dish that is really dear to our hearts as Haitians. Um, it's called Liberty Soup. Mm-hmm. Um, it is with um, pumpkin because back in the days, the slaves used to do that soup for the masters. Mm-hmm. They were not allowed to eat that soup. Mm-hmm. And when we took our independence, we are the first black um, uh, independent um, republic. We were the first black independent republic in the world. And when we gained our independence on January 1st, um, we ate that soup. And everywhere in the world now, when it's January 1st, all Asian eat that soup. But in our homes in the island, every Sunday, we have it also. to being here in Stockholm for the future 50 foods. So I'm doing pumpkin and I'm using also the pumpkin um, flour. And I take in some ways that I don't think anyone ever did that already. I'm going to do some butter and I'm going to use it with sugar also, spice and sugar. That will be very nice if you can stop by. We're waiting for you. <laughs> I can't wait to try it. And it's such a powerful story. Thank you. Thank you. Really and inspiring. And we will use Moringa also. And Moringa has a story behind Moringa. it. Moringa. I've yes. got some of that at home. Is it green? Okay. green? It's green. I've got a green powder. Okay. Can you tell us how to use it? Because I, it's just sitting in my cupboard. <laughs> okay. Moringa is a... Moringa olifera is a tree. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's really good um, in the Caribbean because, you know, we are prone to the impact of hurricanes. And this is a tree that they call it's the never die tree because it can go anywhere. Even if you don't have water, even with the soil, it's very hard. It will go. Mm. And we call it also miracle tree. And it has 100 names mm-hmm. for Moringa. And what is nice about Moringa also 
if you are in the forest, for example, and you find a moringa tree, just take four leaves. You eat it just fresh like it is, and you won't be hungry for four hours. Wow. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm going to so try that. This is a miracle. <laughs> yeah. And if you find the seeds, if you roast the seeds, um, you um, take two or three per day, no more than three. Um, I think it helps with uh, losing weight. Okay, I need to do that. So that's probably a good <laughs> thing. So I should be drinking. I've got the I've got mohinga as a powder. Yes. Should I make it into a tea or something? Um, you can use it in everything. Okay. Juice, like it is. Yeah. Even alcohol. Can you believe that? Uh. You won't lose. <laughs> <laughs> like make a nice kind of cocktail. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mohinga. Let's you actually mohinga cocktail. We should do that. Maybe you have some tonight. After <laughs> yeah, after work. Yes. Oh, that's and pretty. everything is good in that tree, from the pods to the leaves. Before, um, it's been here for a thousand years. But uh, lately, like um, four years ago, everything's, everyone stopped talking about Moringa and its properties. And if you don't want to eat meat, Moringa has all the proteins. Yes. Nice. I'm vegetarian, so I'll I'll remember that. Thank you. And I just want to say, Natasha, it was so great to speak to you today. Thank um, you. It's Thank brilliant you. to get to know you a bit better and also about your food. Thank you. Thank you, Chef <laughs> Next, I will be talking to food entrepreneur Sam Cass, author of the sustainable cookbook Eat a Little Better and a previous White House chef and senior policy advisor for nutrition to President Barack Obama. Amongst many other projects, Sam Cass is also a founding partner of the food tech company Trove in 2016, which works with corporations who are serious about transforming our health, climate and planet through food. Sam Cass, welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you worked as a nutrition policy consultant and advisor at the White House for former President Barack Obama. What was that like? Yeah, I, well, I actually, I had a few roles there. So I did policy for the president and I ran um, Michelle's Let's Move campaign or health campaign and mm -hmm. I cooked for them. So I had a, a bunch of different jobs all at one time and it was, you know, just the greatest honor of, a, of, of my lifetime. And, you know, it was intense and challenging and, and quite meaningful. We were able to get a, a lot done. I'm so impressed. I've been reading your biography and all the work you've been doing, and it's it's really phenomenal. You're changing the food system one meal at a time, I guess. But I think we've been talking a lot about the challenges we face in our food system, such as biodiversity loss, industrial agriculture, and malnutrition throughout the program. So it'd be really great to hear from you what your vision is for or your solutions to create a healthier food system and what good food is and what should it look like. Oh man, there's <laughs> there's a lot wrapped up in that. I mean, I where to even begin? I think the situation that we're facing is quite grave. The science around climate change is becoming increasingly dire, and of course, food and agriculture is uh, one of the main drivers of climate change. But it's also on the front lines of the impact of climate. And I think our ability to maintain the status quo, which I would argue is wildly insufficient in terms of the health and well-being and nourishment of the global population, even maintaining the status quo is going to be extraordinarily difficult in the years ahead. Forget about making even more progress. So I I feel like we're going to have to increasingly take a quite a pragmatic approach when it comes to you know, having all options on the table about how we are going to more efficiently and sustainably produce 
the nutrients that we need to, to thrive. And, you know, so there's a long list of things I think we're going to have to do. A lot of it is rooted in our culture. And I think a lot of people like to point to policy and the government as sort of the reason why everything is messed up, which is mostly untrue, although government policies have been deeply problematic and there's a whole host of bad policies out there. But really, the way we feed ourselves is not ultimately determined by the government. It's really much more a product of who we are and what our culture values. And so starting to really work to change the core values of our food system based on, you know, how we identify ourselves is, is I think is ground zero. I think, you know, businesses follow our culture and what people are desiring. Governments do as well, sort of how the systems, democracies anyway, are designed. And, you know, that's why I think chefs are so important kind of on, on so many different levels. One, from the, you know, real supply chain side, you know, actually getting, you know, more sustainable ingredients to the market, but really more about how it shapes culture around those, ing- those ingredients and around the values that we, we take to our tables. Um, and chefs kind of sit at the epicenter of all those things. And I think that's why, you know, the idea, you know, working around chefs, which is something I've been doing for a long, long time to try to change the way we think about and the way, you know, what we're cooking and how we're cooking it is, I can't think of too many things that are more critical, sort of a foundation of change than that. Yeah. So you mentioned policy, food policy, and I I wanted to ask you what role does food policy play or more broadly public policy in helping create these changes? Well, I think public policy is obviously, you know, vital, depending on what we're specifically talking about, I think has a real, you know, significant role to play. Although I think there's a a wildly simplistic narrative that basically government subsidies distort the system, make, you know, cheeseburgers cheaper than carrots. And it's those subsidies that are, have destroyed our food system. That's just fundamentally false. And and all versions of that basic narrative. I just wondered if you could explain how, or how it's false, because that's an understanding that I've come to as well. I'm often feel like the government in the UK isn't really supporting better agriculture or through the EU's subsidies. So I, I imagine it's quite different in the US, but how is that narrative wrong? It's probably, it's probably from that vantage point, it's actually probably worse in the U.S. So it's not to say that those policies are smart policies. In fact, I think a lot of taxpayer dollars are wasted and goes to large corporate farms that definitely don't need the support. Um, but it's false because the economy built up around these kind of core crops is quite mature. And if you shifted those subsidies away from corn and soy, Basically, we would continue to grow corn and soy to the exact same amounts, maybe like a percent or two difference on the margins, because there's a well-developed market that people love to eat a lot of cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that's driven the price disparities that we do see has not been the subsidies, because actually when you look at the size of the market, the subsidies are just very small. They're just they're, they're quite small compared to the scope of the of the system. The thing that has happened over decades is that we've just figured out how to grow these crops incredibly efficiently. Now, I say that keeping in mind that we've externalized a lot of the real costs of growing these these crops, namely yeah. the toll it takes on our soil, uh, water, health outcomes, and the rest. But we've been able to figure out how to grow corn incredibly densely with almost no labor. You can plant and harvest 
thousands of acres of corn with nobody on it. And that has brought the price down dramatically. And those are the key inputs for the hyper-processed food industry. And so by comparison, for nutrient-dense foods like fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, statistically, we've invested zero dollars, statistically insignificant amount of dollars over the last 50 or 75 years into those crops. Mm. So they take a ton of labor, they're wildly inefficient, and we have not innovated at all about how we produce foods that are good for us. And that's been why you see such a disparity in pricing. So it's in no way to say that governments are doing a good job on this at all. It's in no way to say that we shouldn't find ways. I, I actually think far, everybody then likes to say, well, why don't we subsidize healthy food? I think we need to actually invest in research and innovation. How do we produce it in a much more efficient and effective manner? Over the long term, I think that's going to get us the best outcomes. So it's no, no way to defend government policies. I think they've been pretty abhorrent. But this I, this very simple idea that that's why junk food is cheap and that's why everybody eats it is just false. I went into the White House with that belief mm-hmm. and sort of you know determined to change subsidy policy, which by the way we did. We pushed aggressively to end direct payments, which is in the U.S. our version of you know directly subsidizing corn and soy. We ended that. It got kind of distorted into how crop insurance is, has been done, but um, nothing changed. So I just think we have to be very careful. There's no silver bullet. There's no magic fix. There's no single demon who's destroying everything. It's just, that's not how this works. It's a really complicated ecosystem uh, from start to finish that is deeply rooted in people's very own identity of who they are. And so there's no, uh, people are are cautious to change as they should be. And it's going to take step by step to both how we change what we want and what we accept from a cultural standpoint and then how we produce it and get it to market from a supply chain standpoint. Absolutely. And I think like you, I'm an advocate for organic agriculture as well and like the lessening of using fertilizers and pesticides because of the destruction they cause to the soil and the uh, local biodiversity. But I really feel like we we need to be subsidizing regenerative agriculture and or you know, small farms essentially that are have like practicing more environmental methods and employing more people and things like that, rather than just looking at terms of efficiency in yield or lack of people. So yeah, it's it's an well, interesting I mean, one. Here's the thing, like I, I think, you know, right now all the models are basically saying that we're out of time in terms of climate and things are gonna start to un- unravel really quickly. Mm-hmm. And you know, the population will continue to grow in a pretty exponential way. And I, I, I think I think the solution is going to be more diversity in how we're producing our food in every sense of the word. Yeah. So I totally agree that we need to be supporting smaller operations that are deeply focused on, you know, soil health and improving it on a, on a local level. But there's no way that these big farms are just going to go away. No. And, and I'm not sure, honestly, at this point that they should. They need to mm-hmm. change the way they're farming. But, but scale you know, has a role to play here um, and has some benefits if used properly. So I do think that this idea that like blindly everything big is bad and everything small is good is, yeah. is not right. And that we need to work very hard to figure out how these bigger farms can do a much better job. Uh, at taking care of the land, uh, doing crop rotations, using more diversity of their genetics and their and their seeds, et cetera, 
and putting less chemicals into the environment. So there's no question like there has to be like kind of radical change in the way they do business. But we have to be thoughtful about making sure that as we get into into more uncharted territory, I mean, like we should just remember, like the whole system right now has been built on the most stable climate in the history of recorded civilization over the last like hundred years than unlimited natural resources of water and soil and cheap energy. And like those days are done. And so on, on all, all those accounts. And so we're just going to have to be really open-minded about, you know, how we're going to actually be able to feed ourselves in a way that's sustainable. I'm really just focused on the kind of the core values and the core outcomes in terms of impact on the land. The tools that we use to get there, I'm much more open-minded about than I once was because we kind of have to be really open to anything that can help us move in the direction of a system that is both protecting the health of humanity and protecting the health of the the planet. And I don't really care how you go about it. If you're doing that, then I'm going to be likely to support it. And there's going to come up trade-offs. There's no question that you're not going to, nothing's for free. And so, you know, there's going to be hard choices that we have to make. And like labor is one of them. You know, I grew up in a, in a labor family. I grew up on picket lines. My dad was in the labor union for a car company, grew up on the, you know, working on the line. And, and, you know, it's a really tough question because if you want fruits and vegetables to be affordable to a lot of people, we're going to have to figure out how to have less labor in the fruit and vegetable production chain to bring the price down because that's one of the major drivers of cost. So the question, be, you know, so there's a real trade-off about where that lands. So, you know, I, I don't think these are going to be easy choices for us to make, but they should be based on kind of the core values and core outcomes of them. It's so, such a deep uh, and interesting subject and there's so many, so many ways of approaching it. But you, you've worked a lot on different initiatives that engage and invest in children in particular, including Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. Why is it particularly important to work with children? Well, I mean, if you have a dollar to invest in the long-term health of a human, the science basically just shows us the earlier you invest it, the better your outcomes. And so, you know, we started working with basically, you know, pregnant moms on up, but that's really where you can have a huge impact on the long-term well-being of kids when it comes to their nutrition. And, you know, as they, they get into school, right now we're seeing kids, I mean, kids, their norms are established when they're very young. So if you're having a, you know, a sugary drink when you're four, that's pretty much what you're going to drink for most of your life because mm-hmm. it really shapes your actual palate. Um, it shapes what kids like. And if they're used to super sweet foods, for example, from an early age, you know, like a, a vegetable is going to taste bitter in comparison. And so the earlier we can we can intervene and make sure kids are surrounded with foods that are good for them, the better chance we're going to set them on a long-term trajectory that's going to lead to, you know, a healthy life based on good nutrition. So we did a ton of work in all the, the – there's a program in the United States called WIC, which is the Women, Infants, and Children's Program. One in two kids are actually born on that program in the United States. It's a really successful program that gives basic nutrition assistance to low-income mothers. And so we did a lot to reform that program, and then we went into – did a lot of nursery schools and then into um, overhauling the school nutrition standards and increasing the – the, the budget for those programs. Um, and it's, I think, one of the more meaningful things that we were able to get done. Wow. And um, have you done any work in school meals? I mean, I imagine it's such an important oh, yeah. part of a child's 
daily nutrition. Yeah, yeah. So, so we did. It was the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which you know set standards on school meals, improved the standards for the first time in twenty years, and increased funding for those programs for the first time in thirty. Um, when we got there, there was absolutely no standard on what you could sell in vending machines in schools, and no standards on what you could sell in the lunch line. You didn't really have to serve vegetables, things like that. So we we overhauled that that bill, which you know, and there's 32, 31 plus million kids who are eating school lunch every day in the United States. So we significantly raised the amount of whole grains you have to have, the amount of fruits and vegetables you have to be served, the amount of sodium and sugar, et cetera, that are in the that are in these meals, put limits on what could be sold in schools. And then also importantly, basically allowed for all schools that have 40% or more kids who are low income, uh, get universal breakfast in the classroom for their kids. And then that proved to be a real game changer because so many kids wouldn't go have breakfast because breakfast was really only for the poor kids. At lunch, all the kids would go and eat together. So you couldn't tell who was poor, but breakfast was only for the poor kids. And so most of them would pass up breakfast because they didn't want to feel the stigma of being poor. And, you know, for many, many kids in the United States, the the vast majority of their calories are being consumed in schools. And when they go home, they're not getting dinner. Um, they may get a snack of some kind. Mm. But these meals are vitally important. And so expanding school breakfast was a real game changer. So it was a huge fight at the time and continues to be a huge fight till today. They keep trying to roll back little bits and pieces of it, but um, but for the most part, the bill stays in, has stayed intact. So next, I'd like to talk a little bit about the role of the private sector. You work yeah. with companies who have made commitments to health and sustainability. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're currently doing? So you know, I think uh, what I learned in, when I was in government, for, I was in government, I was in the White House for six years. You know, so I learned the role that that government has. And school nutrition is actually a great example about where. We have a lot of leverage, but for the most part, eating is a private sector endeavor. Food is grown by farmers and processed or distributed by companies and sold in retail shops. And in the end, you know, if you can't get the private sector to change the way they're doing business, then you're just not going to get very far. And you know, it's a complicated, just like in government, it's a pretty complicated path for a lot of these companies. Now, some food industry. Some of the food industry, they're just terrible. They don't care. They're just out to make a profit and could don't give any care about the impact on or the well-being of the people who are consuming their products or the land. So there's, there's a part of the industry you just got to fight and just try to kick their ass the whole way. Yeah. There's other, but there's a, there's a, I would say probably a bigger sector of the industry that is, you know, risk averse but trying to do the right thing. And then another set that's like really committed and passionate about doing much better than they have and trying to figure out how they can play a really positive role and solve some of these big problems. And then there's this whole another generation uh, of companies. I'm a partner in a fund called Acre that's investing in the future of food around human health and environmental health. And there's a, you know, there's a whole next generation of companies that are starting their businesses to solve these problems. And so I think that there's a real spectrum. But for the big publicly traded companies, you know, there's a, they're they're pretty hamstrung, right? They they're getting crushed from Wall Street uh, on quarterly returns. Um, There's a ton of pressure from the street around, you know, how how they're doing it with a very, very short-term mindset. And anytime you're trying to make change, it's you have to take a longer-term view and your return on investment takes takes some time. So it's very difficult for them to maneuver that. And the reality is, is that part, you know, there's a real 
sort of segmentation in the market where younger people are really demanding much healthier, much more sustainably produced food. But, you know, 40 and up kind of sort of care a little bit, but really sort of doing what they've always done and buying the way they've always done. So the consumer is a big barrier for a lot of these people to change as well. And if they go too hard too fast and then something goes wrong, they're going to get fired. Um, So it's a tricky tightrope for them to walk. So I think part of what we have to do is push them really hard to be aggressive in their commitments around climate and doing a better job on the nutrient density of their products. And then for the companies that are doing well and actually making some real progress, we should be supporting them, encouraging them. And the companies that continue to produce crap and don't care about the planet, we should stop buying their products. Uh, are we going to name and shame? <laughs> no. <laughs> nah, no. I don't, you know, I don't think there's, I mean. There's, it's, it's about supporting people in this journey, isn't it? I mean, we've interviewed people from Kellogg's and Unilever for this podcast, and it's yep. been really eye-opening and enlightening to hear about the different initiatives that they're working on to improve their sustainability and the impact that has on such yep. a such a scale. It's how, like you were saying earlier, you know, scale's actually really important and we've got a lot of people to feed, so this needs big change fast um, yep. because we're, we're coming to, yeah, a chasm really, aren't we, in terms of yep. the climate crisis and we're going to start seeing some real impacts of that. We're, we're already seeing the yeah. real impacts of that and it's only going to get worse so we've all got to step up and improve our own sustainability in our restaurants in our homes and certainly within our businesses the bigger they are the more important it is but i'm glad you mentioned acre because i wanted to ask you about investment and innovation and how we can bring more of that into the kind of healthy and nu- nutritious food space I think in terms of like the dollars at every step of the road from from research uh, and innovation, publicly funded, privately funded, through early stage investment, then even into later stage, um, it's just woefully undercapitalized at every step of the way. And, you know, when you look at the magnitude of both the problems that we're trying to solve and the opportunities to make a lot of money, there's just you know pennies to the dollar what's needed in terms of our investments in in a healthy and sustainable food system. It's definitely where we're going. It's definitely where we're going to be, but it's going to take some dollars to get us there. So that's really what we're focused on, and we really care about investing in companies that have you know a real mission around trying to solve any part of these problems, depending on where you are in the value chain, and. You know, it can look like lots of different things, um, but how do we deploy new business models or new technologies or old technologies in new ways, for that matter, um, that can help us solve solve these problems? And so that's that's what we're doing. And I think there's we're making a ton of progress, and there's a, you know an incredible next generation of companies that are coming on. But I, you know, I think it's going to get complicated. There's technology, you know, in food. We have a healthy skepticism of technology and, you know, which I think is good, although I think we need to – sometimes we we focus too much on the tool and not enough on, um, on the outcomes. And the question becomes, you know, who is benefiting from these new ways of business uh, and, uh, and in what ways? And I think those are the, que- the questions we should be asking ourselves. But if, if in the end we're getting – better nutrient-dense food produced in a more sustainable way at a price point more people can afford, you know, I'm, uh, I'm on board. 
Absolutely. Thank you for that. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask one last cheeky question. Um, what was Barack Obama's favorite meal when you were cooking for him? <laughs> well, I used to be able to get to say that uh, that was top secret, so I can't disclose. But I guess that's probably no longer the case, even though it was, of course, never top secret. He didn't have like a favorite meal. I mean, he ate, you know, really healthy. He's a pretty disciplined eater, no late night snacking. Important. Yes. You know, he worked way to the wee hours of the night, but he was, he kept it pretty tight. You know, if he was like relaxing on a Saturday, just wanted to have a good time, he definitely loved a great, a great uh, cheeseburger. But we ate a lot of fish and a lot of chicken and a lot of brown rice and tons of vegetables. And, you know, he kept it pretty, pretty simple and pretty, pretty straight. Thank you, Sam. It was such a pleasure and so insightful to talk to you on the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Great to talk. Keep up the great work. And, you know, to all chefs who and I've been thinking about and working on a sort of a global chef network for a long, long time and uh, just a huge supporter uh, of of the work. And um, I don't think there's any group more uh, better positioned to transform the way we think about it uh, at kind of every level uh, about how we feed ourselves than chefs and do it in a way that both can shift our culture, but then also in, introduce people to new key ingredients that could actually be the building blocks of the, of a better food system. So, uh, we got to keep pushing and, and take it to the next level. Uh, but thank you for all the great work so far. Thank you, Sam. All right. Take care. And that's all for this episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. If you like the show, please rate, comment and share our podcast. We need your help as chefs and food lovers to achieve the sustainable development goals by the year 2030. On the next episode, we'll be looking at access and affordability of nutritious food. And I hope you can join me for that. Until then, bye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduced waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. The celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs>